The Athletic. Lauren Hill. So difficult to stop. Oh! And then we're going to go to Hada. And then Kanten for Pernille Hada. Miedema. Miedema from the Dokers. Miedema. Goal, 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 goal. Deoro. Alexia Botella. Hello and welcome to the Athletic Women's Football Podcast Euros Edition. Coming up, Spain heading into the quarters. Sondergaard caught off guard and we buy one, start one, sub one. It's Lindsay Hooper here and with me it's the Athletic's Jay Harris. Hiya Jay. Thanks for having me. No problem at all. And Art de Roche too. Hello Art. Hi guys, hope it goes well. (laughs) Yes, me too. Let's strap ourselves in. It has been a very hot one. Uh, The big Group B second spot decider was in a very hot London today, uh, bracing itself for the heat wave of all heat waves. On the board, as you go into the tube, it said, Barking is baking, Tottenham is too hottenham, and Oldgate is Skullgate. Don't you just love these message boards? Um, and another one for me and my dog, Billy. Heat strokes are not nice. Pet strokes are. He'd agree. Uh, be careful if it's a hedgehog. So um, I'm wondering about those boards. I love them. That's one of the, the best things about taking a tube in London, I find, is that you get these inspirational messages and occasionally a bit of humor. I've never actually seen one in person. I always see them on Twitter, which is when you get, I guess, the more funny ones. But I... I'm still waiting to see a very good one in person, which is annoying because I'm in London Bridge basically all the time. <laughs> <laughs> well, for everyone on their travels for the rest of the Euro, especially if you make that trip on the 31st of July to Wembley, keep your eyes peeled for them. Um, away from the heat chat now, England are playing Spain in the quarterfinals. Are we pleased with that? Just a very brief answer from both of you, Jay. Yeah, I, you know, maybe it would have been nicer in theory if Denmark had gone through because obviously Spain are a massive threat. But I've not really been that blown away by Spain at all throughout this tournament. Obviously, they've had the injuries to Pateas and Hermoso, which have been massive. But I just think they've had a lot of the ball in all of their matches and not really been that threatening with it. Art? I'll show off and go with some Spanish here and be brief as well. And I'll say, see. Si. but to be to be honest no i think um uh looking at the game tonight and throughout the whole group stages (laughs) sorry that was really stupid oh no it's fine it was really good it stumped me for a second i was thinking did i give an a b and an a and a b option and he's gone c (laughs) but uh in all seriousness i i as jay said i've not been too blown away i think the one issue is obviously England have been in control for most of their game. So I just wonder how they'll deal with Spain when Spain do get into that rhythm of just knocking the ball about. But um, in, in the grand scheme of things, I do think they should be relatively comfortable. Well, we do know it is Spain. Let's hear how that happened. Spain only needed a draw to beat Denmark into the quarterfinals. Maybe that's the excuse that they'll give for all those missed chances early on. But in the end, it was a header again that did it from substitute Marta Cardona in the 90th minute uh, to seal that 1-0 victory at Brentford Community Stadium. Uh, Joining us to talk about Spain as well for this part of the chat is Bea Redondo. We are so grateful to you, Bea. You're stood somewhere outside and all I know is that a car was reversing a few minutes ago. It was, it was indeed. It isn't anymore, though. <laughs> Hello, how are you? Very good. And, I, and you sound elated as we expected. Yeah, actually, I'm really happy. And unfortunately, we've got a plane right now, which is uh, something that's bound to happen here in London when you get out of the stadium, of course. But yeah, I'm really excited. Um, I've sort of, I was very desperate throughout the game. So now it's like kind of adrenaline going down and being like, wow, okay, that's sorted. We're through. <laughs> Yeah, you know what, if you had a vested interest in this game, I imagine it wasn't a nice one to watch. I bet you didn't enjoy it whilst it was actually happening. 
I, I did not. I think I some, uh, at some point I said something like, did I deserve this? Like, what did I do to someone? <laughs> it was, yeah, definitely uh, not a nice one to watch. Um, it was exasperating. I, I completely agree. The lack of production has been exasperating from Spain in the group stages. And um, that idea of only needing a draw was actually kind of even more exasperating because at some points it felt like Denmark was closer to scoring than, than Spain to kind of maintaining that draw. Do you think, Jay, from watching, do you do you believe they played for that? Is that why it took so long for Spain to get that goal? Were they were they happy to sit on nil nil? No, I don't think so at all. I think they were they were trying quite hard. I just think they just seemed to overcomplicate things so much in the in the final third. And I think a really good example of that is I think it was only twenty minutes into the game when a cross goes into the box, and for some reason Bon Matty could header it and probably score. And she tried to control it with her foot, foot or do some weird flick. Just feels like when you don't have that kind of recognised central striker and you've kind of relying on your central midfielders to push on and get goals, sometimes everything in the final third just feels a little bit forced. And that's how mm. I feel when I watch Spain. And that's probably why most of their goals at the tournament have come from from headers because the traditional route that they're they're trying to do is not working. So no, I think they I think they wanted the win. I don't think they enjoyed the fact that it was nil-nil for so long. They just didn't seem to kind of have that fluency. And then obviously Denmark, I think, were playing five at the back. So they were really deep. And, you know, Denmark centre-backs and and their goalkeeper were fantastic as well. So Yeah, a word on Denmark, Art. It felt, watching, that if there was another, just one other player of the calibre and quality of Harder just to support when she did have those opportunities. We had a little bit of a glimpse of it with Nadine, but obviously that didn't come till much later in the game. Then if she'd have had some support, it was there for the taking, wasn't it? Yeah, it felt like an old school George Graham type of um, approach (laughs) where you just kind of go through every 15 minutes. Okay, we survived that. Okay, we'll get through the next 15 minutes, survive that. And then you almost just wait until you can be free in yourself and confident enough to just push forward. And if, if they had another player who was able to support harder, I think Denmark would have won. Even if say Nadim came on earlier, I've just felt like there would have been chances to get at Spain. Obviously Nadim had that one chance where she was almost, I guess you'd say she was falling as she took the shot. So she couldn't get as much control on it. But then after that, I think Spain just knew okay, we just need to keep the ball and keep it moving quickly and we'll just see the game out. But if Denmark had just a bit more oomph in their attack, uh, and maybe had they done that a bit earlier um, with the substitutes, I think they could have, I think personally, they could have stole, stole the three points. And I don't think anyone would have been surprised if they did. People did wonder at one point, and I heard it in the commentary as well, whether it was too many changes for Denmark, there seemed to be a disruption to their fluidity at one point, and then when you look at the changes that had the the best impact, I think you'd probably say, wouldn't you, Bayer, that it was introducing a number nine for Spain and having Cardona there, and, and were you begging for that to happen sooner? I think in general, the problem that Spain has is that it hasn't figured out how to play against teams that now know how to play against Spain, and so I think in the the kind of facing that low block is something that Spain struggles with as a whole. And I don't think, I personally don't think it's, um, you know, just a number nine or just say kind of having those. I, I think we lack some of that kind of fluidity in the final third, those very quick passes, like trying to break the lines. But I think it's more of an issue of like lack of creativity that Alexia Putellas would bring in, for example, in many of these cases. If you look at 2022, pretty much every goal that Spain had scored before the Euros had come from some sort of creativity from Alexia Pateas. And now that is what we're lacking. We're lacking solutions for teams that just wait. And I, yeah. I completely agree. I think if, if Denmark had been to, you know, try from, you know, a little earlier, they could have easily snatched the three points. I do think Spain was trying, but, you know, it was just a, a lack of, of ideas to sort of break down that defence. When Spain didn't concede early on, though, <laughs> should we have just known then, Jay, um, after about five or ten minutes, that actually it, it was going to be their night because they hadn't conceded that early goal we've become accustomed to this tournament? 
that's a fair point. Uh, so it's good to see they've kind of um, moved on from those uh, shaky first opening minutes they've had at the, the games at these tournaments. To be honest, that's, that's a really good point. They've got their first clean sheet of the tournament. That's something for them to kind of build upon. But then I still do think, even though harder for most of that game was kind of like a one-person army up front, on the counter-attack, Spain are definitely vulnerable when they're playing with that high line. So I definitely think it's something that England can kind of expose when they, they come up against each other in the quarterfinals. Well, we know that England then will face Spain now in the quarterfinal in Brighton. And I suppose the big question here is how will these two teams set up? Bayer, do you think Spain will will still want to keep hold of the ball? Is it going to be massively possession-based given that that seems to be the tactic that Serena Wiegmann's wanted to go with as well? I really don't know if Spain knows how to play in a different style. I think they will go possession-based. And I do think that the idea of facing a team that might want to fight for the ball and not just, you know, sit back and wait might give Spain some chances and, you know, might open up a little bit of that space for them to make some of those passes. So I do think they'll try and and keep that possession base, but I do think they'll need to think more vertical passing and and try and bring some creativity with, I think they did, like Atenea did amazing. So I think she'll probably continue trying to break down the defense on uh, on one of the wings to try and open up the the game a bit more. And do you think that Spain will also be ready for, I'm going to say hostile and as much as we can in women's football, it's not hostile, but I suppose what I'm meaning is quite a vibrant atmosphere, which is clearly in favour of England. I, I saw a lot of the, the fans coming out of St. Mary's after that result against Northern Ireland and they were singing it's coming home and they were waiting and staying behind good hour or so after the final whistle. There really is something gathering. Have Spain got a sense of that and what's going to be coming? I think Spain, because of the latest kind of big stadiums that have opened up, a lot of these players have played against Wolfsburg and, um, you know, at home. The Real Madrid players have played at the Camp Nou. So I think it motivates them to have kind of a big crowd. You know, even if they're not rooting for them, I think it's motivating for a player to see that many people turn up and say, hey, you know what, I'm going to fight for this and I'm going to fight in front of you. That's an interesting point, actually. And, and Art, I hadn't thought about that. But you, you think of the scenes outside for Barcelona matches. We've seen 90,000. All the records have been broken in Spain. Is this actually going to play into their hands that it's going to be a bigger crowd than at Brentford? Potentially. I think also when you're the away team, I think it's almost sweeter to play away from home because you know everyone's against you and you almost create that siege mentality where you're there to antagonise everyone at every opportunity even if that means just kicking the ball between yourselves for a longer time than needed, which, to be fair, is Spain's game. Also, I think that away support in this tournament has been very encouraging for all sides, even... So I was at the England-Norway game, and no, (laughs) that didn't go very well for Norway, but Norway had very strong support in the ground, and I think it'll probably be very likely that Spain do as well. So I don't think being in front of a big English crowd will be too, too much of an issue. And I think they'll be there to spoil the party, to be fair. Just like, just like teams were in, in the men's Euros last year, I don't think it will have too, too big an influence. Here's a direct England-Spain comparison. Listen in on this one, Bea, because I'm going to come to you after I've spoken to Jay about it. So after the first two rounds of group stage games, England had a better passing accuracy than Spain, believe it or not, but only by 1%. So it was 88% compared to 87 There is not much between these two, Jay. What's your interpretation of, of how the game will possibly pan out? I think what Bea said a minute ago is quite interesting about how Spain have been coming up against these teams that were prepared to to sit deep. I think Germany did it to perfection. Whereas England will, especially backed by home crowd, want to come out and be really aggressive and kind of take the game to Spain. And that can definitely create kind of space in between. So it'd be really intriguing in that aspect. I just think you look at Spain's team and it will be England's job to shut down, I think, Mappy Leon and uh, Bon Matti and um, Caldente. And obviously, you can imagine Kira Walsh being the one who's kind of looking after um, Caldente and Bomati. And then some mm-hmm. of the strikers need to occupy Mappy Leon because I just think those three have been making Spain tick at these tournaments. Even when Spain are not looking great overall, those three individuals are still kind of excelling. 
So I think that's where the three most interesting individual battles will be in the quarterfinal. On another podcast, former Lioness Karen Carney-Bayer said that her and Jill Scott, when they played Spain, they used to play like crabs from side to side. They just had to block the spaces that Spain wanted to play through. And that was their tactic. That was the game plan. Is it as easy as that to disrupt Spain? I do think it's um, kind of a very good tactic. I'm not sure it's going to be as easy as that, but I do think that Spain has shown this kind of struggle when those spaces have been closed down. So that kind of lack of accuracy in the past and lack of ability to find those those gaps, those spaces in between to push forward could definitely play in England's favour when it comes to try and shut Spain down. So definitely could work to have that kind of crap style of play. <laughs> That's what I'm imagining now. Kira Walsh side to side, Georgia Stanway doing it as well. Uh, we'll see. Obviously, we, we don't know whether there will be rotation. Probably not because we haven't had any to date. Bayer, it's all about keeping all of the guests happy. So I'm going to try and include you with this too to try and keep your spirits high. So we'll start with your thoughts on Spain's chances. Okay, if that's uh, trying to keep me happy, I'm not sure it's working. I am not incredibly positive about Spain's chances, I must say. I think we do have more chances than we did against Germany, I will say. But I am I am not that sure. I, I would, If I had to bet, I would bet on, on England, even though, you know, the fan in me has to support Spain and probably watch this and endure whatever it is that we have to watch. But yeah, okay, let's say... It could happen, it could, you know, probably 40, 60 go into England. So that's not that bad for Spain. Oh, OK, 40, 60. Well, we'll try and make you feel better because I'm going to ask both Art and Jay. England, the hype. So when you start getting excited about England and you start going with those fans that were out St. Mary's singing It's Coming Home, what brings you back down to earth? It could be a person in the squad. It could be a thing about the squad, anything. We'll start with you, Jay. I think what makes me nervous or what brings me back down to earth is the second that England as a nation get overconfident and um, we start thinking we're in the driving seat. And I think this is kind of like the perfect like analogy for how the closer we get to kickoff, I'm going to feel about England, Spain in the quarterfinals. <laughs> because yeah, England, England have played so well. We're thinking, yeah, you know what? Spain came into, it came into this tournament, probably the favourites. They've not looked that good. We're cruising. It's going to be a comfortable, comfortable victory. We're going to be in the semi-finals. And that kind of, um, yeah, just overconfidence. Look, we're all England fans, well, apart from Bear, but we've just all seen it so many times before where we get our hopes up and they just get dashed. So, don't be surprised if all of a sudden you see an absolute Spain masterclass because that's that's how knockout football works. Spain have mm. done the tricky thing. They've ground it out. Maybe they've learned a lot from these three group stage games. England haven't really been tested. And yeah, it could just all, all of a sudden go quite wrong up against quality opposition. It hasn't passed me by either that Serena's already in a press conference been asked about, have you been practicing penalties? <laughs> uh, so we know that hangs over us as well. Art, for you, what is it? For me, it is kickoff. Every single kickoff of every game. I, I don't know why I'm always calm and I just feel like, oh, this is going to be just whatever. It's, it's going to be easy until about five, 10 minutes before kickoff. And then it's just me looking at the clock and wondering, when is this all going to be over? <laughs> I think every, every, it doesn't matter what game it is. If I'm invested in it, it's that kickoff and I hate it every single time, which sounds really weird. I don't know why, but um, <laughs> it just does something to me where my nerves just go. So yeah, I think for me, that kickoff, that that first whistle just brings me right back down to earth to the reality of the situation. And here's mine. It's related. It's how England have started matches. I think it takes them a while to settle into a match from what I've seen mm. so far. And we haven't had an opposition yet that's really tested or punished that. So if they start as slowly against Spain and Spain have all the possession and that passing accuracy figure is even higher, how do we respond? That's the question. That's going to hopefully give you a little bit 
of confidence there, Bayer, because it didn't sound like you were when you were saying 40, 60, I'll be honest. But really, we're all gunning for it and we think England are going to win the Euros. So, <laughs> hey. Speaking of England, Friday sub Jess Carter was the only black player to play for England so far this tournament. There are three black players in the 23-player squad with Demi Stokes and Nikita Paris as well. And it's been a topic that clearly reared its head on social media and got a lot of attention. It was part of Alex Scott's documentary, which is available on the BBC. As a, as a line of questioning as to what's happened with the pathway. Some of that has got answered to a degree in the sense that the central areas of excellence have only just moved to regionalised areas, allowing better access, etc. But let's let's keep Bayer in this conversation as well, because it'd be really interesting to know what's been going on in Spain too. But, but first of all, Art, do you think there has been a huge opportunity missed and are we talking over the last decade since the, the game changer came in, that, that initiative from the FA, to inspire more young kids? Potentially, but I, I'd also say like when you look at football, sorry, women's football before that came in, so maybe 15 years ago, you still had a lot of players who weren't, who weren't just white that were very prominent. So you look at Alex Scott herself, Anita Asante, Rachel Yankee as well, and they were almost like, I guess, superheroes because because they were so prominent in their teams as well. It wasn't like they were just there to make up the numbers. And I think that's the key thing, really. You can't just say, okay, we're going to change this because socially it might look better. You have to actually change it at the, the kind of foundation level to make sure that not only is it a talking point when, say, there's a Euros that comes round, but it's an actual conversation is happening all the time so that talent wherever or whoever it is, is being developed. So they, they are actually part of the team, not just someone who's there to, to make up a number. Um, and mm. I think from, from my personal perspective, that's what it's about. And it's also not just about England, but if you look at the WSL as well, it's quite, mm. quite common there where you won't see a lot of different faces, but hopefully um, that kind of changes as as time goes on. Do you think as well, Jay, that there was some hangover from the Mark Sampson era? Because even though the Lionesses did so well at that World Cup in Canada, I feel like more of the headlines were about racism issues around that time than was actually about football on the pitch. And if you're a young person who's quite keen on football and you're from a different demographic, a different social background, and and you're seeing all of that, is there an element of just feeling like, well, that's not for me because I feel excluded already? Yeah, if it's okay, before before I kind of talk about Mark Sampson, I actually wanted to talk about why it's so important that this discussion is being had. Yeah, because off the it, back yeah. of Elid's comments the other night, I've just seen a lot of things on yeah social media and people writing columns and stuff that are quite quite disappointing to see. And I think you know Art kind of mentioned it a minute ago. The England women's football team are are superheroes. They're inspirations for people up and down the country, no matter what age they are. And if you're that England team should be reflective of how diverse and how wonderful this country is in terms of its a mixing pot of so many different cultures. So when you're somebody who's from a slightly different background and a different culture, you don't see yourself represented in that England team, it's harder to connect with them. And I think that's kind of what, what's being missed, you know, and it is all backgrounds because I think if you're a young British Asian, there is really not yeah. very much representation there either. I think sometimes we always talk about black players and it isn't it isn't just that. I think representation across the board. And I felt it so sad. I was over here in a conversation with some some young girls actually who who were black and said that they felt that they were more represented by France than they were by England when they saw the teams. Yeah, definitely. And that says it all. And that, that, that's about visibility. And the, the point you make about people from a British Asian background is, is really important as well, because I definitely think in the men's side of the game, there's been more of a push to kind of understand why so many people from a British Asian background are playing grassroots football, but then none seem to be able to make it into mm. uh, academies or the professional game. But yeah, it's, it's all about visibility and kind of having that connection with the country that you're from. And, and if you're looking at the faces of these people and they don't look like yourself and your friends and your family, then that's going to feel a little, a little underwhelming and a little bit disappointing. And it almost feels like you're not invited to that party. And there's certainly mm -hmm. times where myself growing up over the years, not necessarily in a football 
concept, not necessarily a football environment, rather, have definitely been in that situation. But this kind of links into the Mark Sampson stuff. You know, Eliola Luco and all of those people involved in that situation were let down by the FA and people remember that stuff. So you'll get people, you know, black mixed heritage kind of looking at football and thinking, is this really a place for me when it took so many inquiries to actually come to the truth? That's going to make people feel like they're never going to be protected or they're not going to feel mm-hmm. safe. And that's a massive problem if people don't feel safe in a sport and that the sport's not for them. Because I can remember moments when I was growing up where maybe I was on the school playground and I was getting called something. And the first time you you mention it to a teacher and they don't do anything, you keep trying. Then the second, third or fourth time, you just don't bother anymore. Mm-hmm. And that kind of l- lack of trust in the kind of the organisations and the people that are supposed to be protecting you is probably definitely being felt by certain people that witnessed the whole Mark Sampson incident happen and, and would have been put off and feel like football in this country is not for them. And that's a real... That's something that needs to be addressed and acknowledged in order for the situation to get better and improve. The one thing I do feel assured by is that I do believe change has been happening for some time, but we just haven't been seeing it. I think there are attempts and it's much lower down the age groups and it will take a while for those players to be seen, certainly at senior level. And of course, that's the huge shop window in women's football at the moment. It's all around the Lionesses, isn't it? Really not that many people pay attention to the under 17s, for instance. But if you think, and this is what the encouragement I'd like to give anyone that's followed women's football for a while, is if you think about the the aims that were set with the senior team and how long it's taken to get to this point. I remember 10 years ago being in room saying, this is our target to try and win a major tournament in five, 10 years time. And now we're starting to look at the the real possibility of having the ability for that to happen. I think if you look further down at, at grassroots and the pathways and how they've tried to change, and I have been assured that has been happening. It's not to say that there isn't more that can be done. There always is. But I think we're probably seeing at the moment the failures of, of probably five to 10 years ago rather than right now. So I just wanted to put that point in. Definitely on that, because I did a little bit of research before I jumped on here. So in the Premier League, 43% of players are black. And obviously that's not just people from England, that's people from all over the world. In the WSL, the most recent research, which I think was 2020, 29 out of 300 players were were black or mixed heritage or from an ethnic minority background. So that's 43% in the Premier League versus just under 10% in the WSL. So that's a massive disparity. And like you said, that will take 10 years to change. So when we're sat here on this podcast in 2013... Oh, I hope so, Jay. I that, hope that, so. I'm sure that number will be much higher than 10%. And if it isn't, <laughs> that's when something's gone wrong. But I'm I'm more than positive that that it will be much higher then as well. Bea, is this an issue as well with the Spanish team? Is it something that's discussed over in Spain? I don't think it's discussed as much as it is over here. I also think the English society as a whole is much more diverse. I think in in Spain, we do have kind of a big majority of um, diversity coming, especially from Latin America, whereas here it's much more eclectic. You were talking about, you know, people from Asia, black people, etc. So I do think it is a little different, but I do agree with you on that, you know, we are seeing some improvements at a lower level, like junior teams and so on. We still don't see that at a senior level, but hopefully I think in five years time, if that isn't happening, then we need to definitely start asking questions and asking, you know, why can we see it at a junior level, but not, you know, in this kind of senior environment where, as you said, everyone's looking at. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, sp- we spoke to Jess Carter previously on a podcast. She said, hopefully our performances and us being with England will help show other children from different backgrounds that you can play on this stage and that football is accessible for everybody. Also, the PFA, they've launched their See It, Be It campaign, really feeding into what you were saying there, Jay, as well, about, about youngsters coming through and, and wanting to see their idols and stars at that senior level. So that's obviously a network there that's uh, for BAME WSL players. It's given them increased visibility. And Charlotte Harper from The Athletic will have a big piece on this coming out. So read that. Uh, Bayer, thank you for letting us keep you for that chat as well. It's really interesting to hear what happens in Spain as well and other European countries. And also to get your thoughts on England, Spain, which we can't wait for. But we're going to let you go home for now and catch your breath. Thank you. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. 
Well, for that big quarterfinal, we're going to have England legend Kelly Smith on the show. We can't wait. Kelly paved the way for this team. And of course, it happened before even her era as well. So did the first official England women's team from 1972. And after having some complaints made, I know that the iPaper and the iWeekend did a lot on this because they haven't been recognized enough the FA have, has announced that they'll be getting their official bespoke England caps finally at the 50-year anniversary, uh, which will be announced at a, as a game to happen this autumn, which is fantastic news. I've actually had a day of this, Art and Jay, uh, fighting the cause for women in football today. I've been with the Football Supporters Association holding a workshop about how women feel in football and male allies. So it's great to have you both on. I mean, one of, one of the big topics that came up was about safety for women in football, getting to and from games and feeling safe at matches themselves. And there was a booklet that I picked up and it had match day attendances and a stat underneath. Uh, Who do you typically attend home games with? 32.8% said friends. Nearly 30% of people say they go by themselves, which I think feeds in to that concern around women at football, maybe. That's one of the areas we need to look at more. 23.2% go with their partner, just over 17% with a child, 16% another family member, then there's parent and a supporters group below that as well. So I, I would just wonder from both of your point of views, whether it's something that you've thought about when you think about women, whether it's attending women's Euro or, or other men's matches as well. From my perspective, I do think it is probably easier when you have people to go with. I know, say, if you ask my mum, for instance, and my cousin, they've both wanted to go to games a lot, but it's just because, say, I'm working at a game, I won't be with them most of the time, so they won't go. And I think that is something where you'd probably just find it's a lot easier to just find people to go with in the men's game, which I'm not sure what the reason for that is, but I think it definitely does play a part because you just, I guess have a bit more comfort, uh, a level of comfort when you're with someone familiar. And I guess, especially when the vibe is is so different, I think it's quite strange to see that. Um, and also with, I feel like the way the TV times work differently in say the WSL, for instance, sometimes it can be a lot trickier, especially when games are played at stadiums that, that aren't, the men's stadium. So looking at it from an Arsenal perspective, they play at Meadow Park, which is probably another hour away from inner London compared to the mm-hmm. Emirates. Mm-hmm. And I think that is something that really hinders the WSL at times because it can it can make and break your weekend sometimes, depending on how how far or how long you're traveling, especially when, say, if you have a really long work week, and you have to make an enormous effort to get from, say, South London to right at the tip of North London and almost basically spend your whole Sunday or Saturday doing that. I That's think, a really good point. Yeah, they're, they're not as close, are they, to no. the areas that they're deemed to be in the football club's title sometimes. Jay, anything for you to add to that? So were all those stats just to do with um, attendances in the women's game? They were attendances across the board, going to a game. I'm just quite intrigued that 30%, 30.8% said they went by themselves. That 29.8, like a, yeah, 29.8. I thought that was incredible, yeah. That that makes me sad because football's supposed to be like this really good, it's kind of like the social power of football, isn't it? You know, meeting new people and, and just kind of connecting people from all different places. So knowing that such a high number kind of feel like the only way they can go is go by themselves is quite... It's quite a shame, but w- the point Art made about grounds and things like that is is very true, and just at, at difficult times and things like that. I think I'd like to encourage anyone listening, if you would like to let us know and you'd like to be involved, we're doing a listening project in collaboration with the FSA at some point, and we're going to try and discuss lots of different topics. Obviously, we'd love to have the floor to be able to do this now, but it just gives you a glimpse into some of the the key areas that still need discussing around women being involved in in football generally, not just the women's game, but the men's game as well. Uh, Let's get back to the Euros, though. That's what we're here for. On to the team that several people on this show have 
have predicted that England will meet in the final. Thank goodness Bay is gone. Uh, it's Germany <laughs> who took on Finland. They've got defending to do again here, Finland. And the ball in is headed home. It's another headed goal. And it's Alex Pop on target to double Germany's advantage. Germany had already secured their quarter-final spot, but they were hungry for more against Finland. 3-0 was the final score in Milton Keynes, uh, with first international goals for Sophia Kleinherner, who scored the opening header, and Nicole Anyami, plus Alexandra Pop. There she was again, three games in a row, and no... Pop popping up hasn't got old just yet. <laughs> it's actually been a really good talking point around her for this tournament with Germany because you just look at some players that maybe people have written off. I think of of maybe Jill Scott when she got called into the Lionesses side and many, many people were surprised that she's here. She still has something to offer. Pop's shown that she's still got something to offer. We shouldn't be writing these established players off, should we? Not at all. And obviously I was, you know, really fortunate to go to the the Germany versus um, Spain game earlier in the week. And uh, the piece I wrote after it was about pop and just, you know, it's a fantastic story, you know, missed the 2013 and 2017 European championships through injury, you know, was touch and go for this tournament. I think she like, tore her meniscus, had loose cartilage in her knee, the kind of grit and desire that she's displayed to not only make the squad, but to then score three times in three games is uh, is seriously impressive. And it just goes to show you again that these are the kind of stories that I love in football, just kind of when people have, you know, fought for their entire lives to kind of get to this stage and they they and they just enjoy themselves. Like they're, like they're having so much fun. I know there was a, a chance in the Finland game where she nearly scored with like a backheel flick. Yes. And you just think that's someone who's just so grateful to be here and be in the moment is absolutely relishing it. Um, it was a, a brilliant article as well that you wrote. So we will urge people to check that out. Um, it's you. still on the on the Athletics website. Is there anything, Art, that we've spotted yet that we could say is a potential weakness for this Germany team? It's really difficult, especially when you consider Austria are a team who almost just rely on those really narrow margins going their way. I wouldn't say that to be putting them down, but even at the last Euros, they played within their means I feel and I just don't think that you can do that against Germany with how explosive they are and how efficient they are as well I just feel going into that game there isn't much Germany can't do that Austria can do everything I I just feel like they will have too much too much for Austria to handle across the board so yeah I, I just maybe I will be wrong but um I'm going to stick with Germany as I as I did in the group stages. Do you think it will be more narrow though, Jay, going up against Austria because they have shown that they they've really worked out the way to frustrate teams. Yeah, definitely. And you know, if we're just shouting out everyone's articles, Zinsberg's been really good and, and after an interview with. <laughs> keep going, yeah. Keep it. Cheers, cheers, fella. No, no worries. <laughs> and Art did an interview with Zinsberg, so obviously. <laughs> That, that's what you need to do at a tournament. You know, yes, it's always good when you're, you know, thrill a minute and you're scoring loads of goals, but the most important thing is to keep it compact. And mm. the longer, you know, they, they shut Germany out in that game, the more it goes in their favour. But like I said, having said that, the three games I've watched Germany play, they were absolutely phenomenal. And what strikes me the most about this team is if we compare it to, to England and what I said about England and Spain's quarterfinal, Germany have been tested in this tournament. They were in the supposed group of death, although it didn't quite turn out to be as dangerous as, as people thought it would be. And they've had the games where, you know, they blew Denmark away, but then they really had to grind out their victory over Spain. So I just feel like there are so di- so many different dimensions to them that we've already seen in this tournament that they're going to be more than rise to the occasion again and, and find a way through. And they just have so many different options, even on the bench. Their, mm. their, their squad's just got quality all the way through it. You would think as well for Austria to have any chance they need all of their players in good shape. We don't want to hear about anybody getting COVID or picking up an injury in training. They need everyone on it. And and that was something that didn't happen with Finland tonight, Art. Um, they were missing key players, Westerlund, Hiranen, and goalkeeper captain as well, Korpea, who we know from WSL. So they had players missing. I mean, what can we say about Finland? They lost three consecutive Euro games for the first time ever, what was your overall assessment of them? 
Yeah, I think it's quite difficult because when you look at the performances as a whole, going into that, I guess, group of death, as, as Jay called it, as everyone was calling it before the tournament started, it's all about how how you want to play. And if you do have big misses like they have, then that can just pretty much ruin your tournament because you don't you don't go into games where, and it's quite similar to Spain in a way, I guess, where they can't play to their full capacity because they just almost have to play within yourself. And that's not how any team should play. And when, especially when it's only over three games, I think you're really going to see the impacts of that. So I, I just felt they were kind of, especially with the group that they had dealt a really difficult hand. So I'm not sure it'd be too scathing of a, I guess you'd call it a school report. Would we still call it a school report? Yeah. Hmm. Why not? Maybe. <laughs> or half term report, maybe. <laughs> I don't think it would be too scathing. Hang on. I know this is random, but oh, isn't your grand like an English teacher? It says that your <laughs> that influence coming through. Yeah, so yeah, my, my grandma used to Did be she a leave teacher. a red biro on the table before you started recording this? <laughs> so, <laughs> to be fair, so I think it was usually like obviously I'd have usual school and then I'd have school with her. <laughs> so <laughs> there was a lot of um red biro in in the margins on where i needed to improve so thanks for bringing that up jay <laughs> this is why you had two reports we only had one report right jay? <laughs> yeah. well That's, yeah uh, you say that but my mum was a head teacher oh, and gosh. <laughs> i in the end i kind of i was a good student but i was he just says. very much like no i was come on give, give me some credit <laughs> but i was just so like there's not a chance you're getting me to do extra work. Like, I just, she'd be like, oh, I can get you some, you know, practice papers and things like that. And I was like, I'm not doing that. Not a chance. So uh, her, her attempts to kind of do the same with me didn't quite work out. I wonder what the report is going to look like for these two quarterfinals <laughs> that have been decided. England, Spain and Germany, Austria. We're going to bring back something now. It's called Buy One, Start One, Sub One, Euro Edition. It is what it says on the tin. I'm going to give you both our quarterfinalists, England, Austria, Germany and Spain. Of any of those teams, can you choose someone who you'd buy their player? And which player is it? Uh, I'm going to go with Art. I'll buy England's Beth Mead. Who are you buying, Jay? Spain's Mappy Leon. Starting one. (laughs) Who starts for you, Jay? Oh, maybe I should have said Mappy Leon. I was too late now. Um, (laughs) Can't be the same answer. Yeah, I know. I will say... That's your mum talking. <laughs> I'll say Svenja Huth from Germany as well. Ooh, nice answer. Um, who are you starting then, Art? Ooh, this is tough. This is tough. I I feel like I'm going to start Caldente as well. I'll start Caldente. I'll go Spanish. She did look good. And who are you subbing from which team? This is going to be interesting. This is controversial. Uh, I may come to regret this, but I'm going to say I'm going to sub Ellen White for uh, Alessia Russo. Oh, <laughs> and all the work she does off the ball, James. <laughs> Moving know, players out of position. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, no, R- Russo was great. Loved that second goal. Okay, Art. <sighs> this might be unpopular. I would sub Rachel Daly for Alex Greenwood okay. at left back look, look at us two trying to tell Serena Vyden <laughs> <laughs> and she's got more time on her hands at the minute she might be listening who knows um, that is our verdict let us know yours on social media at Offside Rule Pod you can go to at The Athletic UK as well so remember you've got to buy one start one sub one Euro edition go you're listening to The Athletic Women's Football Podcast Euro edition That's enough of all that. Coming up on Sunday, Switzerland play Netherlands in Sheffield. Sweden face Portugal at Lee Sports Village, both at an earlier 5pm kickoff time. Why have they done this just in time for the heatwave? I wonder. Uh, One Sunday, 8pm kickoff was enough for all of us, maybe. Um, It's all to play for in this one. And whoever tops the group avoids playing France. Netherlands and Sweden are tied on four points. Switzerland and Portugal have a point each. I think it's easy to say with this one, isn't it, Jay, that it's the most exciting group, it's turned out. Yeah, definitely. It's all to play for. I mean, that's always 
the best part of a major international tournament when you've just got a group where, you know, you'll be watching a game and you'll have the table just on the right-hand side in the corner and it will just be updating every 10 minutes and you'll hear, oh, there's been a goal in the other game and all of a sudden Portugal are getting knocked out and Netherlands are going <laughs> to win the group. I just love that kind of stuff. Art, you're going to actually be at Switzerland, Netherlands, aren't you? So this is a Switzerland side that have a 25% conversion rate, three goals from 12 shots. They're going to need more against Netherlands, aren't they? Although I do realise that there is breaking news today that Miedemar hasn't travelled to Sheffield. She celebrated her birthday in isolation and the team serenaded her on her balcony. Where are you on this one then, Art? Are you expecting to see Switzerland up that conversion rate or is it going to be Netherlands strolling through? Personally, I think it's going to be a very similar game to the Netherlands-Portugal one where Switzerland may be able to give them a push, especially if Ramona Backman is fit enough to play after coming off early in in that game. But I just feel like the quality across the Netherlands squad will be more than enough for them to get through. My real kind of, and I know it's not the game that I'm at, but um, I'm really kind of excited to stay across at least what happens with Portugal because... I know we were talking about this the other day, Lindsay, but I was just really excited by their performance. It just looked like they were having fun. And when when they have to win, I, I just feel like that's going to go into o- overdrive. And I know we weren't too too impressed with Sweden. So that's kind of... You predicting a big shock here. That's, that's the one. I, I feel like there could wow. be a bit of movement there. Um, oh. I just feel Portugal are brave and I think that bravery is they're brave after they've conceded too yeah they are (laughs) (laughs) and 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 if they've sorted out their corners they're defending from corners so hopefully maybe third time lucky third time's the charm they've actually sorted out what they're going to do from from minute one (laughs) but um that's that's the one that I feel is going to be the most entertaining a player that didn't feature in either of your buy one, start one, sub one <laughs> was Sweden's Aslani. And Jay, I of her. <laughs> you know what? Yeah, involved in seven goals in nine appearances in the last two major tournaments, scored three and has assisted four. So she's got the figures. Are we being too quick to think that Sweden haven't shown enough? I mean, when you're pulling up stats like that, now it feels a little bit disrespectful <laughs> that Art's basically saying that Portugal are going <laughs> to sort them aside. I think Portugal have nothing to lose, though, don't they? It's, it, and that's kind of that—that that is a factor that will play into into Sweden's minds. You know, they they know that if they just keep it compact, they can they can sell through on five points. But then, if Portugal are coming at them and kind of pushing people forward and things like that, it can get a little bit shaky. So. Sweden, you, you you should think would have enough to kind of play it safe and, and kind of squeeze their way through, but it will be fun to see what happens. So how does the group finish, first and second? We know that Art's got Portugal coming second <laughs> by the sounds of it, or maybe even top. Are you thinking they're going to top the no, group? No, no, it, it'll be Netherlands top, and then Portugal are just going to sneak second, in my opinion. All the Silvers are going to have a great game. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then, and then yeah, that that's my top two. Okay, Jay, is yours different? I'm, I'm, I'm praying for a plot twist now. So can, <laughs> anyone in this group can still qualify. So so what if Switzerland and Portugal both win and they both win by such high margins that Netherlands and Sweden get knocked out? Is that a possibility? I think that could well, happen, yeah, right? They're all like on mirror image goal difference. Netherlands and Sweden are on one goal that difference is- and then <sighs> Portugal and Switzerland are on minus one. So maybe... If my maths is right, maths wasn't my best subject. Sorry, Grandma. I, I, I would love for that. I, I would love love for that to happen, but I'll be sensible and say Netherlands will come out on top. Um, I'm going to stick with Sweden, so me and Art can argue about this tomorrow evening, and then, <laughs> and then Portugal and Switzerland. Well, uh, whilst you're arguing about it, you can also go and uh, maybe together go and see some of the sites of Manchester. Uh, We've got help for you with that. You might even know it well enough as it is. But if you're travelling to Lee uh, and staying nearby in Manchester, this is Ella Toon's top tips for the city. Okay, coffee shop. Best coffee shop. Oh, you know what? You're asking the wrong person because I don't drink coffee. Okay. But I I know a lot of the girls like, like... Ezra and Gill or Ezra and Jill I don't even know how you say it <laughs> there's actually so many coffee shops in uh, Manchester though so 
you're best off asking like Kira and yeah. Ellie Roebuck and all them lot. What about bars? Bars. <laughs> yeah, there's a few bars to be fair. Um, I don't know, there's a there's um like Revs to Cuba, Albert Slosh, they're like quite vibey. More of like you go have a drink, have a dance, you know, one of those ones. Okay. What's your favourite things to do in Manchester? My favourite things are to go out and eat food. Yeah. Best restaurant? I like Rosso's. That's real Ferdinand's restaurant. Because um, I like a nice steak. And then Haw- if you like a steak, you've got to go to Hawksmoor. That's oh, yeah. unreal. Um, quite expensive, though. Um, so I like going out and eating food. And when we have the time, going out with the girls to, to bars like Albert Slosh and, and just having a good night. Best dish? If you were like, this is a mank dish, what is a mank dish? Oh, a mank dish. See, every time I go out, I have steak and chips. Do you think that is that just like your favourite thing? That is my favourite thing, yeah. yeah. Like when I'm going out, I just want a nice piece of steak. Or like, I feel like there's quite a lot of nice Italians in Manchester, so get a nice little pasta dish. But yeah, there's so many different places to go and, and to go and eat different foods. Um, but yeah, I'm a steak girl. Best thing about football in Manchester? I think obviously the rivalry in Manchester is massive, and everyone knows that. Um, and then also I think, and obviously the, the stadiums that, that we play at, so Old Trafford and the Etihad, unbelievable stadiums. But I think the main thing in Manchester is, is the crowds and the people. And uh, I feel like Manchester United have the best fans in the world, and I always say that, but just think the passion of, of football and supporting the club and the love for the club is, is just special in Manchester. Wicked. Thank you. Well, that's all we've got time for on today's Athletic Women's Football Podcast Euros edition. Don't say that we don't help you culturally as well as with the Women's Euro. <laughs> uh, thank you, Jay. Thank you, Art. I hope you enjoy the matches and what unfolds tomorrow. Thank, thank you, you very much. I, I'll be keeping an eye on Portugal from Sheffield. <laughs> <laughs> if, if I didn't know better, I'd think you were a Wolves fan. Uh, thanks to producer <laughs> Sophie as well. And thank you very much for listening to our daily Euro shows. We're loving bringing them to you, but please stay with us throughout the tournament. Let other people know as well and give us a lovely five-star review. That would make our day. Follow, subscribe, and we will catch you again tomorrow. Oh, gosh. What is this that Sophie's given me to sign up with? (laughs) What language is this, Sophie? Spanish. Spanish. Oh, I had Spanish the other day. I don't think Spanish is for me. I think (laughs) your grandma and your mum would say, no, don't choose it as a subject. Hasta mañana? Yes. Yes. Yay! (laughs) Nailed it first time. The Athletic.